Hi, and welcome to Bread. We're a newish, open-minded, spirit-filled, non-denominational church who now meet each week in Hollywood Adventist on the corner of Hollywood Boulevard and Van Ness in Los Angeles. In-person church life, as with the rest of life, it's going to take a while to find its shape again post-Covid, and slowly and surely is going to be our mantra for a while. All these podcasts are taken for the time being from our Sunday services, hence the not always perfect audio quality and background noises. You can live stream them or watch the videos later on bread.church if that's more your thing. How to Return is the theme of the current series. We hope it serves you well. It's very nice to have you with us. My name's Ed, for those of you who don't know me, and along with Hannah, I lead the church that meets here. Um, and just to give you a kind of recap of where we are. So we started um, meeting in person again, what, um, seven months, seven months, seven weeks ago, I think. And the real focus was just kind of um, returning. How do we return to back in person? And there's still lots of people who don't feel comfortable coming back in person, so we still kind of get there, but it was a kind of return. And now we're hitting the summer. It's the summer, isn't it? And where is everyone? They're away. Uh, so um, we're going to be in summer mode for a little bit, and we're just going to chill. It's quite important, isn't it, for us to actually not be going and going and going and going and going and going the whole time and just be able to um, rest. Rest is a biblical concept, and we're going to be doing some resting. And then the plan is, come September, we will um, start ramping up again uh, with uh, super small groups, with courses, those sorts of things. So see yourself during the summer. Be here. Receive from the Spirit. We're doing summer nights as a way of just building community, um, uh, become normalized again in what is a very odd summer, isn't it? Um, I'm not totally sure what pre-designator of summer it now is, but it's something, something summer. Uh, and just enjoy the summer for a bit. Good? Good. Uh, right. So, uh, to start with, uh, over the summer, we are starting a course, uh, starting a um, series on the book of Ruth. Um, and today I'm kind of going to introduce that. But before I tell you that, I need to say that I got a letter through um, the mail this week saying that um, we have a kind of hillside at the back of our house and I had to cut all the brush um, on the hillside for fire reasons. And so I looked at some quotes to do this and I thought, I'm not going to pay all that money because I'm really tight. I am going to do it myself. So I went to Home Depot and I bought a strimmer and then I tried to cut all the brush on the hillside. When I say hillside, I mean cliff. It's like this, and what happened was I fell all the way down the cliff, and that's why I've got horrible things on my hands. Don't be distracted by my hands. Just saying. Uh, anyway, there they are, don't be distracted. And I also cracked a rib. Don't be distracted, but yeah, I know. Thank you, Kyle, you can come again. Uh, yes, I cracked a rib. No, you can't see the bruise. That would be very distracting. Uh, you guys would basically go, wow, what a body. I can't, like, I'm not, I'm not looking at the bruise. I'm just looking at the abs. Uh, so I'm not going to do that. You're thinking about my abs now, aren't you? Uh, anyway, good. Ruth, let's talk about Ruth. So um, I'm going to introduce this very short book. Um, comes at the beginning of uh, the Old Testament, towards the beginning. And it's one of my favorite books, mainly because it's short. I like a short book. I tried War and Peace once. I lasted about three pages. 
Uh, I like short books, uh, but not just because it's short, um, also because it's a great story. It is a brilliant story, but mainly because it's so subversive. That's what I like. It's one of those stories, like all the best stories, where, say, where it basically uh, says, you thought this, but actually I'm going to show you that you should really think this. It turns the world upside down. And in so doing, it kind of forces us to reconsider our understanding of this God that we, um, that we serve. Do we actually know what he's really like? Even if you've been a Christian all your life, even if you've been in church all your life, I think the book of Ruth says, yeah, but our God is bigger and stranger and does things in ways that we don't actually fully um, always appreciate. Because what it says is that the kingdom of God is upside down, and it always has been, and it always will be. The first are last, and the last are first. The weak are strong, and the strong are weak. To lead is to serve, to die is to live, and the king of the universe gives it all up to be born as a helpless babe in a stable. The eternal God gives up his life so that deeply troubled humanity might live forever and ever, starting right now. Mercy triumphs over judgment, and grace makes zero sense. It plays by no rules. It is completely, entirely unfair, but it's so powerful, the most powerful force in the whole of the universe, that it saves the world for eternity. The book of Ruth, you see, is the story of an immigrant who is the hero. It's the story of a woman who is the hero. It's the story of a widow who is the hero where all earthly understanding of the situation says this has no hope. This is not going to work. God says, no, this is a completely different story. This is the story of me. And those people that are told by culture, you do not belong. Those are the ones I like. Those are the ones I want, and those are the ones I take and I grab and I use for my glory to make the world great, because that's the sort of God I am. Because these women, and the main two characters are Naomi and Ruth, they are actually integral cogs in the whole story of redemption. They are ancestors, mothers even, of a child who was born in a stable who grew up to save the whole world. So it's a story that is subversive at its very core. And, did you know, quite likely written by a woman. Isn't that interesting? Fun fact for your next quiz. So perhaps the Bible is not the nuanceless blunderbuss of patriarchy that some have made it out to be. Now, to be clear, the authorship and its dating aren't completely decided upon, but most likely written by a woman after the reign of David, and therefore um, when the Israelites uh, were just about to go into exile in Babylon, probably during Solomon's reign, maybe a bit later. But the action that it describes is very clear, and the action is set after the exodus, after the people of God have come into the promised land after Joshua, but before the kings, during a time, as it says, verse 1, chapter 1, in the days when the judges ruled. So today, I want to consider, as way of introduction, two of the themes of this opening chapter. Unconditional love and unconditional hope. We um, had our Alpha Day last uh, Saturday, where we went away, and um, 
I spoke brilliantly. I really did. I was very good. You missed out if you weren't there. But one of the things I did was to um, explain the whole of the Old Testament in about two minutes. And I think it's worth repeating for us now, right? Just as a way of introduction. So, the books of the Old Testament combine to present one coherent message. And the message is this. There is one God and no runners-up. There is one God and no runners-up. This one God reveals himself to Abraham. Abraham doesn't know much about him, but he reveals himself to him and says, I am the one true God. You are going to be um, uh, the father to all these descendants. And then his descendants worship this one God. Again, they don't know much about him. They give him various names because they see him do things, but he is their God. And by the time of Moses, he is also revealed to Moses, and Moses leads his people out of Egypt to the promised land. Because this is at a time when all the surrounding nations are pantheistic. They have loads of different gods. And this one god dismisses all these other gods as nothings. Idols made with human hands. They can't even speak. They are mute. They are useless. But I, the true one god, the actual thing, have entered into your history. I have rescued you. I have become your god and you are going to be my people. And the Israelites look forward throughout the Old Testament to a time when every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every race is brought in to worship this one true God because, and here it is again, there is one God and no runners-up. So let us, given that context, get to the action. There is, there's been a famine in Israel, and we hear that a man called Elimelech from the tribe of Benjamin has left Israel with his wife Naomi and moved to Moab for a little sojourn. He's decided to go there to try it out for a bit. And he lives there with his wife Naomi in Moab. Moab, a kind of heathen nation on the outskirts of Israel. But Elimelech dies, and then so do, to, so do his two sons, both of whom had married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. So the widow Naomi, who's lost everything, decides to return to Israel. And let me pick up the story from verse 8, chapter 1. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Naomi, no, don't ad lib, just start again. Uh, Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept aloud, and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, No, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to two sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this, they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, 
Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. So Naomi, this widow, is culturally speaking of her time destitute. She has nothing. She is to be despised and rejected. No husband, no name, no family, no sons. Now, I think it's probably quite easy for us in our 21st culture to be dismissive of other cultures and say, well, we would never do that with Naomi. You know, she doesn't need a husband to be someone. She doesn't need to have children to be someone. She is important. We're dismissive of other cultures, aren't we? Um, just for example, in northern Germany, if you are a woman and unmarried on the occasion of your 30th birthday, your friends will expect you to clean their doorknobs with a toothbrush whilst wearing fancy dress. Easy to be dismissive. In the village of Solapur in India, they believe that newborn babies will receive luck and intelligence and good health if they are tossed, tossed from a 50-foot high tower down to the village below where the rest of the villagers hold a sheet and catch a newborn baby. Completely true. In the village of Castrillo de Murcia, yes, that's my Spanish accent, in northern Spain, they think something very different. All newborn babies, in fact, in order to receive health and wealth and all those sorts of things, are laid on pillows throughout the town. And then the men of the village wear red with strange masks and then hurdle over all of the babies. And that's what they do. Easy to be dismissive, isn't it? And similarly to our modern ears, the idea that Naomi would be despised and rejected as a nothing, really, simply because she's a widow and has no sons, we can be easily dismissive of, can't we? We can sort of go, well, that's so um, reductive. We would never do something like that. And yet, of course, every culture has its nobodies. Who are nobodies are just changes with circumstances and time, because now you can be dismissed as purely on the account of the shape of your body. Naomi couldn't care less about the shape of her body, whether she had a small bank or big bank. We dismiss people on account of whether they say the right thing on Instagram or the wrong thing on Instagram, or don't say the thing quickly enough on Instagram, or don't cancel that person, or don't promote that person, we dismiss them out of hand, because every culture has their nobodies. Now, none of these things would matter in the least to Naomi, but being husbandless and sonless for her was a really big deal. She was culturally nothing, so let us place ourselves into her shoes for a second. She's a nothing, but precisely for that reason is why God says, I'll have you. You're the one I want. Because then no one is in any doubt who it is who changes people. Nevertheless, she says this, verse 20, don't call me Naomi, she told them, call me Mara. 
because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. The reality is she has lost all that matters to her culture. She is empty. By contrast, though, Ruth is full. Not that she has a husband. She doesn't. She's a widow. And not for the fact that actually everything's going to turn out right for her. What she's doing is actually going somewhere where everything is most likely to be very bad for her. She's going to be a racial outsider there, which leaves her open to racial abuse and to violence. But Ruth is nevertheless not empty. She is full, full of courage. Where you go, I will go, she says. Where you stay, I will stay. And the question is, why? Well, firstly, because of unconditional love. Verse 8, Naomi says this, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. Naomi is releasing her daughters-in-law to their homeland and to their families. She doesn't have to, but she does. It would actually make a lot more sense for her to insist that they come back with her. She has nothing. With them by her side, at least she has companionship. At least she has people who might defend her. At least she has people who could potentially marry someone and provide for her. But she doesn't. She says, you go back to your people. She insists that they leave for a better life without her. This is love, unconditional love. The one that says, your needs before mine. You go before me. I'm putting you first. But there's also more to it than that. Because in verse 15, when Orpah has decided to leave and Ruth is clinging to her, Naomi says, your sister is going back to your people and her gods. And this is important because Naomi is releasing them not just to their families where they will be safer, but she's also releasing them back to their gods. Now, I have three children. So does Hannah, and they're both of us. <laughs> We really want our children to know Jesus. We really do. We really, really do. Because we love them and we love Jesus. And we want them to know the real Jesus, not the one who is clouded with all this guff. That might be a British word. But not the one who's been shielded from view by various things that um, people have said and done in his name. We just want them to meet the real Jesus because we've met him and he's wonderful. He's beautiful. He's the one we're all created for. I really want my children to know him. I'm also a pastor. Do you know, I really want you to know him. I know lots of you do, but I want you to know him in even deeper ways. It's why we do what we do. It's why we moved and got on a boat. We didn't get on a boat, got on a plane and came over here in 1745. <laughs> it's, why we move. it's because we want people to know Jesus, the real one the one who changes people's lives, the one who is just so attractive, so addictive, actually. Praying for people last um, weekend on the, on the weekend away and just seeing the Holy Spirit meet people made me go, oh, I love this, I love this, I love this, I want to do this more, I want to see the Spirit meet people. But do you know one of the hardest things about being a pastor and definitely one of the hardest things about being a parent is having to let people go and for them to make their own choices. 
you are, as we always say, completely here on your own terms. It's what love does. It lets people go and go after their own gods if they want to. At some point, our girls will make their own choices, and their choices might be choices that we don't think are a very good idea, but we're going to let them go because that's what love does. It will be heartbreaking. It will not be easy. Now, does that mean that I think other people's gods are just of equal value to my god? That we're all actually, you know, there's a whole pantheon of gods. You have your gods, I have my gods. Aren't we all lovely? No, not at all. I've got the real one. Yours, nothing. Because there's one god, and there's no runners-up. And the same is true for Naomi. It's why she says, verse 8, I'm praying that the Lord Yahweh, by which she means the only real one, I'm praying that he shows kindness on you. But she still lets them go. And here is the effect of it. Not only does Ruth choose to go with her into the most uncompromising of terms, terms that probably, actually, if she's thinking about it, will mean death. But she says this, May the Lord, may Yahweh, may the actual one deal with me ever so severely if I'm not true to my word. And what she is saying in that moment is, yeah, he's my God, not one of many, but the God, and I am coming under him. This is Ruth, the Moabite, the outsider, the heathen, not just playing along with Naomi's gods, not just giving them lip service, but coming under the lordship of Yahweh. This is Ruth choosing to follow the one true God. Why? Because Naomi has let her go, has shown her actual unconditional love. And I think really what's going on for Ruth is she's going, whatever has allowed you to show me such ridiculous, reckless love, that's the God I want to know. That's the one I want. The power of unconditional love. Let's just pause there for a second. People that we love, people we know well, members of our families, sisters and brothers and sons and daughters and mothers and fathers may have gone after some other gods. The gods of political rightness. The gods of being self-satisfied. The gods of money, of self, of fame. The gods of America the gods of unforgiveness, the gods of intolerance, the gods of bigotry. Just by, um, by the by. Um, do you know um, what you are if you hate bigots? Correct, but also a bigot. Naomi is entirely correct. She's got the real thing. But she chooses unconditional love. And it's the love, as one writer put it, of the non-exclusive, non-excluding love of the exclusive, the one and only God that changes people's hearts. 
Let us, as people of God, who know this God, be people of unconditional love. Secondly, Ruth is full of courage because she knows unconditional hope. Um, I'm an immigrant. Some of you are first or second uh, generation immigrants. Anyone who has gone through the process of immigration will know that it is costly. It is costly financially, it is costly emotionally, it's costly relationally. It costs stuff, the whole nine yards of cost. You have to learn things like avocado toast. Knew nothing about that. I had to train my new found, um, uh, <laughs> my new um, environment had to change me because it costs to immigrate. But every immigrant will tell you the reason for immigrating is because of the hope of a better life. Yes, there's a cost, but there is a sense in which there will be more. This is why we, this is why we come to this lovely country. This is completely not true of Ruth. She's an immigrant, but she knows that where she is going is somewhere where life almost certainly will be worse for her. As we will see in the next few chapters, she is risking complete ostracization, not just on account of her being a widow or being a woman, but also because of her nationality. She is not only risking destitution, she is actually genuinely at the risk of physical and sexual violence too. The situation for her is hopeless. But also, so too is her companion. Imagine traveling with Naomi. Naomi, everything is bad, Naomi, it's awful. I'm sure you know people like that, they're so fun. The world is against me. Do you want to travel with her to make a new life for yourself? Her companion is hopeless. The Lord has afflicted me, she says. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. If our hope is built on our circumstances, we will be hopeful to the degree to which our circumstances give us hope. None of us need reminding of how quickly circumstances can change. Did anyone wake up on January the 1st, 2020, going, I am full of New Year fun, and I can't wait for a global pandemic? No one thought that, and yet, what hit us? And if our hope is built on relationships, we will be hopeful to the degree to which our relationships give us hope. Now, one of the great privileges of being a pastor is... Um, being able to see single people find each other. It's wonderful. And then start dating. And then actually choosing to get married. And I have had the privilege of doing so many uh, weddings over the years. It's so fun. Go, oh, I was there at the beginning. You found each other. Oh, look at you saying your vows and crying. Oh, it's wonderful. And also baptizing and welcoming new children into um, the community. Such a privilege. It's great. God loves relationships. We are built for relationships. He loves relationships of all sorts. He just loves them. But also, the flip side of that is seeing the breakdown of relationships that Hannah and I see firsthand of counseling people through grief, of counseling people through marriage turmoil. Relationships fail. And this is very painful. Let us as a church not gloss over them. 
We need to celebrate with people who are celebrating and grieve with people who grieve. Jesus announces himself. He only says a few things in his announcement of himself. One of them is to bind up the brokenhearted. So are you brokenhearted? Do you know people who are brokenhearted? Let us join with Jesus in binding them up. It's what he loves to do. But the point being, our relationships can only bring hope to our lives to the degree by which those relationships are hopeful. Ruth is a book almost like no other in the whole Bible in that almost nothing miraculous happens. Actually, nothing miraculous happens. God doesn't even really speak. He's kind of in the background throughout. It's actually a very mundane book. There's no parting of the seas, no burning of bushes, no voice from heaven speaking, all very mundane. And this is actually one of the themes of the book, that God is with us, very much so. He will never leave us. He is here right now. But he's not always doing the drama. And if our hope is built purely on the miraculous, on prayers answered as we would wish them to be, then our hope is dependent on something that might be up or down. Now, don't get me wrong, we could all do with more of the miraculous. We as a church could do more with the power of God coursing through every time we meet, seeing healings and deliverances, seeing his power displayed, because that's what he has come to do. Uh, One old Archbishop of Canterbury in England, which is like the head of the Church of England, was asked by a skeptic reporter, he said, you know, can't you just describe all your prayers that seemingly are answered to coincidences? And William Temple, the Archbishop, said, when I pray, coincidences happen, and when I don't, they don't. Which is a good point. Let us be a church that prays. And praise and praise and praise to see the power of God displayed. Because otherwise we're just playing at this thing. Oh, God's, you know, yeah, we believe in him. Let's see his power. But even hope built on answers to prayer will be conditional on prayers being answered in the way we want them to be. Instead, what Ruth has is unconditional hope. Unconditional because it's not built on circumstances, it's not built on relationships, it's not built on answers to prayer. But her hope is built on something that never, ever changes. Her hope is in Yahweh. He will be her Lord. Verse 16, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And what it means is that she drags morose, hopeless Naomi out of the depths with her hope. Naomi, despite being everything, still able to show unconditional love to Ruth, which changes her life forever. And Ruth, in turn, pulls Naomi up out of the pit. Let me spoil the ending. We will get onto this in the coming weeks. But Ruth gets married. She gives birth to a son. And this is what is said to Naomi at the end. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. We'll get on to that. He will become more famous throughout Israel. May he become more famous throughout Israel. 
basically, I've, I've written this out and I haven't checked the spelling. I don't actually know what it says. It's not there. Uh, let me say, okay, here it is. Praise be to the Lord who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will be the renewer of your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who you love and who is better than you, for you than seven sons, has given him birth. That son is the direct ancestor to King David, who is the direct ancestor to the King of Kings. And what God is saying is, I am always at work. I am always at work, whether you see me or not, and I am redeeming things. I am making things good. I am the one in which you can always place your hope. Because I am the one who always shows unconditional love. So let us receive from him again. His love, his hope. So that we can, like Ruth, be people full of courage who are not hit from the left and the right by our circumstances, by things happening out of our control. We love to think we're in control, don't we? We build our whole happy lives to go, look, I'm completely in control until something happens when we know, oh, actually, we're really not. The whole shebang of Christianity is basically going, let's just admit we're not, and let's let him. He never changes. He is the one who will change our circumstances for glory and for goodness if we would just trust him. Amen. Amen. Let's stand, and why not sing um, that song, that one, you know, the, the one that we sang. Um. Come to the altar. So at the end of our services, we always pray for people. Um. Church is not about um, church attendance. It's not about reading your Bible. It's not about praying. It's not about singing the songs. Church is about allowing the Holy Spirit to change us from the inside out. Everything else is just a means to that end. So the reason we pray for people is we found it the easiest way to allow the Holy Spirit to do what he's already doing. We're just inviting the Holy Spirit to carry on. So in a minute, after we've sung this song, we'll have an opportunity, and you can come and find a little spot out on the floor. And what you're doing there is just saying, Holy Spirit, meet me. Speak to me. Do what you want to do. And we'll just add our prayers to your prayers. But use this song as a way of receiving from him. When we worship, we give out, right? We give out to him. When we open ourselves to the Spirit, we're receiving. Some people find it very easy to receive. My eldest daughter, for example. No shame at all. She will receive anything that you give her. She loves it. No shame. Yes, give me more. Give me more. I would like some more. Other people find it very difficult to receive because you're being told it's up to you. You need to do stuff to please him. You need to make sure that you are a good Christian girl, good Christian boy. Jesus says, no. I am here to pour out myself to you. Just receive it. So allow yourself, take yourself off the hook, give yourself a break, and receive from him the love of your Father, the hope of Jesus.